0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. I am excited to be back in this series. We've got just a couple more weeks on it. And today we are on this amazingly unique transitional character named Samuel. Okay, He's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, sort of. And he's at a hugely transitional time in the people of God, where they went from a very disorganized tribal confederacy into a time where, well, it seems like they thought they would be united through having different kings and leaders. But let me tell you, the kings and leaders they got were not the ones that they needed. So you've just got a very unique time. Um, it seems like there's no real grand vision at all going on. Actually, there's a line in our text today, I want you to just kind of listen for it. It's kind of unique. It's like, why would the authors, why would Samuel's book, this book, say this line? It's like, it's just a little throwaway, and yet at the same time, it says so much about what was going on. It just says, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. You know, it's kind of a poetic way of saying a little more than just the fact that there was this, in the sanctuary of God, a lamp that was lit at night. Why would he have, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. It's just almost to the point where there is no more faith in Israel, and everything has fallen apart, and Samuel is on the scene. It's at this time of human crisis that we're going to read our text. 1 Samuel chapter 3, the whole chapter, (laughs) but I think it's worth it. Okay, so here we start. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming weak so that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And the Lord God called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me, my son, Eli said. I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to the end, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering." Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What is it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what, it is, what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. This is one of those... Um, Old Testament Bible study text that's used often in Sunday school. Do you remember? Maybe some of you were in Sunday school and you remember hearing about the little boy Samuel in the temple, right? And the word of the Lord coming to him. And um, it is so not a children's story, though. And that's what happens so often. We think, oh, we're going to, I mean, kids should learn this story. But (laughs) there is so much going on in this story that kids probably would Uh, it would be a lot for them to take in and understand what's going on. And so we turn the story often into a G-rated version of, you know, be like Samuel. Listen to when God speaks to you. You should be like Samuel. When Samuel isn't really the center of his story, we've said this before, the only hero in the Bible is God himself. And everybody else, well, there are some good things that you will see in the life of Samuel, and I would not say uh, just like anybody's life, a follower of the, of the one true God. But at the same time, Samuel's a pretty complex figure, and there are some things that uh, don't turn out all that well as well. So what I think we're going to learn from this chapter as we have learned in the story of us all the way through, it's going to be these three points that we're going to look at. The human crisis that was going on at Samuel's time that I think we can relate to. God's concern that he shows through Samuel. And then finally, God's word and action. Okay, But the human crisis. Maybe you're not familiar with this time. I think uh, Pastor Carl led through um, Ruth and through Sam uh, Samson's those two stories in the book of Judges. Judges is a mess. <laughs> okay, if you read Judges, half of the stories you probably don't even know that well because nobody wants to share those stories. They're so disturbing, disturbing stories at the end of Judges. There are points in time that people would say, oh, I can't believe the Bible is just has this. Well, it's because human nature is that way. Okay, The Bible is not covering anything up. It's exposing what human nature is really like at many points. And the book of Judges is filled with that. And so what Sam- when Samuel comes on the scene, um, God's people are in the midst of a huge crisis. This is the way the New Interpreter's Bible commentary says it. Samuel is called by God in a time of spiritual desolation, religious corruption, political danger, and social upheaval. Hmm. <laughs> Sound familiar? Um, the word of the Lord is rare. The sons of Eli are corrupt. The Philistines are about to threaten Israel's survival. The pressure to move towards kingship will soon grow overwhelming. It sounds so much like today in so many ways. We have all these fears that are pushing and motivating people to go in this way or that way. I mean, I was just reflecting on um, the amount of social upheaval we face. faced. Um, since I was born. Now I'm kind of dating myself with this. Um, But I looked up on Wikipedia this week, just just curiosity-wise, the different uh, international wars and conflicts the United States has been involved in since I was born. And this is the list. There's 24 of them, 24 of them since 1960. What? We can add more, probably. Uh, And actually, this is just the international stuff. We could look at the domestic things, from um, all the mass uh, killings that we've had in the United States terrorist activities in the United States, to protests, to violence. I mean, it's just amazing. I grew up with the myth, I think uh, it's more of a myth. And it was small town, Michigan. I mean, it was really a quaint life, I'll tell you. It was safe. You felt very comfortable wherever you were. But I grew up kind of with the idea that the United States is this wonderful, peaceful, stable democracy. And everything is perfect and wonderful and great. Kind of like that movie Pleasantville, if you've ever seen that. And once in a while, there is an issue. And I think a lot of us kind of want to believe that, but it might be a little on the flip side that it's not intermittent issues, but uh, pretty often the issues come up with intermittent times of peace and stability, at least I think we can then relate to Samuel in his day, OK? Um, this is why Abraham Herschel says it this way. He says, the Bible is not behind the times. It is ages ahead of our aspirations. Its aim is not to record history, but rather to record the encounter of the divine and the human on the level of the concrete living. So when you look at the stories of Samuel, they are almost so, almost too current, almost too real. And what they're really trying to push is the idea of you, in your common everyday living, get to encounter the divine, the one true God like Samuel did. Now, there are a lot of odd things in this story, and I don't know if you've recognized them over time. And sometimes our English translations kind of gloss over a couple of things to try to make it look a little better than it is. So um, here we are, Shiloh, it's the place where in the book of Joshua, they said they set up the tabernacle, right? But now, at this point in time with Samuel, we hear Eli is the priest. We don't hear about multiple priests, and there is no high priest. And then Eli's two sons are the other two priests. According to the book of Leviticus and the rest of the Torah, there should be hundreds. Hundreds of Levites attending to this site, as well as dozens of priests. Eli should not be the only one and his two sons. Did you know that? And what is this place, Shiloh? Actually, in the text, whatever this sanctuary, it's called a temple, not the tabernacle. It's the word heikal in uh, Hebrew. And so it's a temple of some type of permanent structure. In fact, it says Samuel closes and opens the doors of the place, not the curtains. So something is odd about this. And then on top of it, you might think this is cute, but this is not the thing to do. Samuel is sleeping inside of the temple near the Ark of the Covenant. If you know anything in uh, the Torah, is like you don't get close to that thing, right? So it's just odd. And on top of it, then, we hear about Eli's sons. In 1 Samuel 2, it says Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. They used their position for their own pleasure. They would, in fact, it describes in that chapter how they would take the best from the sacrifices and give the leftovers over to God, the opposite of the way it was supposed to be. So we're not quite sure what to make of all of this. And I think what this says is we are at a low point, a nadir where, as the text says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, but boy, it was close. The true faith in the one true God, the God of Joshua and Moses, it's almost gone. And the last, and in fact, God turns not to the powers that be, the learned and the wise, he turns to a child to start over. Abraham Heschel writes uh, in his book, in God, God in, uh, God in Search of Man, when faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Ouch. We might be there. huh? Um, I don't know if you know, Russell Moore, who is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, he's just written a new book. I haven't bought, bought it yet. Um, but he wrote in uh, the Atlantic Online an article. And it starts out with this paragraph. He says, the number one question that younger evangelicals ask me is how to relate to their parents and mentors who want to talk about culture war, politics, and internet conspiracy theories instead of prayer or the Bible. These young people are committed to their Christian faith, but they feel despair and cynicism about the church's future. Almost none of them even call themselves evangelical anymore, now that the label is confused with political categories. Sometimes I feel like I'm crazy. One pastor said to me just days ago, does no one see that the church is in crisis? The issue is not just that our culture might be in crisis, that the nation might be or the world is in crisis, but the Christian church in America is about where Samuel was, right? The lamp of God has not yet gone out, but boy, does it feel there's some real issues going on. And the things that people talk about, that Christians are fighting over, are not the main issues that the scriptures talk about, not the gospel. We're not sharing Jesus that much anymore. It's all something else. As T.S. Eliot once said um, in one of his poems, um, everything is falling apart, the center cannot hold. That's the crisis that Samuel had. Now, the good news is that God has concern our second point in this text we see that god is not absent on the scene god has not said you know what i've i'm given up i've sent judge after judge after judge time and again i've worked with these people you know and they're still not listening i mean i'm i'm going to move on and find someone else god does not do that god is not oh well that's the way it is he is not showing instead it is god's concern once again that you read and understand from the bible time and again it's amazing that the bible unlike any other world religions in other world religions so often it is that humans are trying to discover the divine trying to figure out the way to the divine trying to discern trying to search for But the Bible, God is the one who searches for humanity. God is the one who shows concern for human plight and the crisis that we are in. So Abraham Heschel goes on, God looks at the world and is affected by what happens in it. Man is the object of his care and judgment, the basic feature of pathos that is God's compassionate concern. And the primary content of the prophet's consciousness is the divine attentiveness and concern. He appears as one who demands, one who acts, whose intention is to give righteousness and peace rather than to receive homage or adoration whose desire is to bestow rather than to obtain. And all that the prophet knows about God, he never finds in God a desire which does not bear upon man. You read through the Bible from this perspective, and you will see that God is always concerned with where human beings are. From the first moment, as we saw, with Adam and Eve in the garden, it is God who's asked the question, where are you, Adam? He's already concerned with what's going on with Adam and Eve. And he has never let go of that concern. And even at the lowest of the lowest points here in the history of Israel, where there is almost going to be no Israel and no one of faith, God shows such concern that he comes and approaches a small child. Timothy Simpson writes about this passage. He says, Eli represents the vested interests who are used to having their way. And who expect that the place that they have occupied in this present generation will continue indefinitely, even into the lives of their children, world without end. Boy, I've been seeing quite a few um, leaders in this world who think that they need to stay in charge until the day that they die. You know, they're going to hold on to power, and they think they're the, supposed to be running the world. Such are typically depicted in scriptures being, as Simpson says here, far from the heart of Yahweh, of seeking their own ends rather than seeking the interests of God or the people whom they serve. This has happened within the Christian church as well. We have had many leaders within the church who hold on to their power and their position for themselves and not for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now he says, by contrast, Samuel represents those to whom no one ever listened. The people who are regularly dismissed as unimportant, peripheral, or out of touch with the real world. It is such people, the text shouts, in whom the Lord delights in using as conduits for bringing the word to the people. That's the point. It's not that Samuel is so wonderful and pure and innocent as a child. Not at all. It's the fact that he is insignificant. He doesn't matter. On the grand scheme of things, he's a kid. And though the ancient Near East and the Israel would say, children are a gift from the Lord, they would never turn to a child for advice or counsel. (laughs) You know? They would turn to the older, the wiser, the greater. And yet again and again throughout the scriptures, as we have seen from the beginning in Genesis all the way through, time and again, the firstborn are not the one that God chooses. He chooses the second or the last or the least or the likely. And here, Samuel's in that category. He's a kid, five, six years old. He's all that's left. You know, the role of most uh, world religions in society is to bind together that society, to give them kind of a mythic story of why we are so special and wonderful, but most importantly, to give divine sanction to the people who are on top of the pyramid, okay, the ones who are in charge. Here, the true faith, God is the one who sends prophet after prophet, starting here with Samuel, to upend that whole system. Time and again, God has to send a prophet to a king to let them know that they are outside of God's will because of the way that they are treating the widow and the orphan and the foreigner who happens to be in their midst, how they have exploited the poor and hurt those uh, with injustice because of their greed and their luxurious living. You can read through Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you see this time and again. God shows concern for the injustice that's happening in this world and the social breakdown, so much so that he calls Samuel. And we see at the end of Judges, as I think, I don't know if Carl brought this up or not in one of his sermons. It's kind of the refrain that keeps happening at the end with these horrendously just disgusting stories and shocking things that happen at the end of Judges. The whole book ends with this line, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of pointing toward, we need something. We need a better leader than what we've had. The judges aren't enough. And so God works through Samuel. And God's word is placed into action through the life of Samuel, our third point. This is how it ends, right? The text that we had just read, 1 Samuel 3. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That's the message of the Bible, actually. See, this is where God is the hero. God is with you. God was with Samuel as a child, as someone who was insignificant, who had no power, no position, no prestige. God is with you. And here it says God's word through Samuel, wouldn't fall to the ground. That word, Hebrew word, is nafal, to mean to abandon or to collapse. It's just an amazing thing. You see, human words fall to the ground all the time. What I'm saying right now, it vibrates on your eardrums and you forget it in about you know five seconds, 10 seconds. It doesn't do anything. Most of my words don't do much. I can describe things, but I can't prescribe things. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can say, let there be light, but I'd better be by the light switch to turn it on. But when God spoke in Genesis, let there be light, the next line is not, and then God went out to make light. No. God's word accomplishes what it says. It's a performative word. It does what it says. This is why in the New Testament times, when Jesus spoke a word, with authority, they were shocked time and again, and especially like when he the, there was a paralytic that was brought by four of his friends, and Jesus' first words to him are, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees were like, wait a minute. He didn't say, may your sins be forgiven, or I hope your sins are forgiven, but that your sins are forgiven. That's like speaking like God, exactly. That's how God's word works. That's why Martin Luther, I think, aptly says it about this. He says, we must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is like a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes, but the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. God's word does what it says. And because God's word was with Samuel, whatever Samuel did would not fall to the ground. And I'll tell you this: even when Samuel himself, you would say, "Well, there's some irony to his life." You see, um, the whole reason he came onto the scene, or how he got to where he was, was because Eli's sons became wicked and evil and self-serving, and Eli didn't he law, he didn't discipline his own sons and just kind of let things happen. But then. At the end of Samuel's life, this is what it says in 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the second Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside from dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. For all the good that Samuel did, it didn't end up in a dynasty. And the book again kind of betrays the fact that we need something greater than this Samuel. We need something more enduring. No matter how much good there is, Israel would be back in the same place again, time and again. And yeah, Israel in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, they ask for a king like the other nations. They think that's their solution. And God knows that is not the solution. In fact, He says, <laughs> Because Guess who was supposed to be their king? God. He tells Samuel, no, they haven't rejected you and your leadership. They've rejected me and mine. That's been the problem all along. They've been rejecting me from leading and being their God, being their king, their only king. You see, even these stories in the Bible point to a future where we need something greater than Samuel, something greater than a judge, something greater than a prophet, something greater than a king. A human king. Because in the end, human beings, as we see all around us, all the leaders that we've ever had, no matter how many things you could say, well, that was a good president, or a good CEO, or a good um, leader of this nation, or that, or this church, or that, we're flawed. And we're pretty bad at leading. It's interesting. I, I, I don't think this is a coincidence at all. In 1 Samuel 2, says this about Samuel himself. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. But then in Luke's gospel, as you see, it's almost verbatim. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke's saying, here's your answer. Here's the one child who will lead who will accomplish all things, whose words will never fall to the ground. And in fact, God's word would never be broken through Jesus. In fact, for him to be able to establish God's word forever, his own body would be broken upon a tree. Jesus himself would become the word of God, spoken and lived in such a way in the flesh that every word of God is true for you and for me. And yes, God will use a Samuel. He will use you. He will use you in whatever position you're in. Right now, what I'm praying for, part of what I'm praying for, is not that many of our older um, members or older Christians in the United States have not been good and faithful, but I am praying that maybe this younger generation, um, as I'm seeing it at FGCU, the freshmen that are coming in as we're doing orientations there, maybe this younger generation, God will raise up like Samuel, because we're in a crisis. We're in a situation that we're not solving. Only God can. And you might think, you can't really be used by God, or I'm not significant, or I don't have any power. It's not the military leaders. It's not the presidents and dictators and CEOs that actually make things happen. You realize that a 250-pound, 6-foot-5 muscle man with a wet noodle is nowhere near as powerful as a 90-pound weakling with a grenade, because the word of God will not fall to the ground. Samuel wasn't the greatest. It was God's word that was with Samuel. So human crises, we'll see them. It does not stop God's word, nor his ways, nor his will, because Jesus Christ is the ultimate leader and the ultimate word that we have. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that the story of Samuel is really the story of our lives as well. We see the crises that are around us and uh, the problems within uh, your people itself, Lord. We don't have to look at the world's problems. We can look right within the Christian church, Lord. We pray, Lord, you would raise up and use the uh, weakest or the least or whomever you choose, Lord, for your will to be accomplished. Help us, O Lord, to rely on you, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring about a renewal, a revival, whatever you need to, through whomever you see fit, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that your word never fails. It doesn't fall to the ground. That your word is powerful and accomplishes what it says, that when Jesus... You said it is finished, it is accomplished upon the cross. It has been. Our debt has been paid. Our sins are forgiven. New life is given in your name, and we thank you for that. We pray that your word would be upon us and in our lives and that we would have the courage as Samuel did as a little child to speak it because we know your word accomplishes all good things. We pray, Lord, that you would be with those who need your healing touch in our congregation and in our world right now. We lift up to you, Nathan, as he is recovering, Lord. We pray your healing, that a miracle could be done there. We lift up to you, Jamie and Dick and Otto and all of us, O oh Lord, who are facing difficulties in our lives and physical ailments, that you would bring healing and restoration and, Lord, power. We pray for our church, we're not great, we're not big, we're not, um, you know, looked at and revered by the world, but we know, Lord, you've worked through Samuels many times over and you can work through us. Lord, we know in just a short two weeks, the students at FGCU will start a new semester, that the academic year will start for our area in so many different ways. We pray, Lord, that this would be a year that you have your way and your will with that college, as well as with our children, and that you would uh, have a movement of your spirit across uh, Southwest Florida, starting with us. Lord, prepare our hearts as we come uh, to offer ourselves to you with our offerings and as we uh, prepare to receive uh, what you have to give us, your very self, Lord, in the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would work through all these things that your will is done and your kingdom comes among us because that is what we need most of all. All this we pray in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.